Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. The generosity of listeners like you allows us to offer ministry programming designed to reach people around the world. If you'd like to partner with us in an ongoing way or by giving a one-time gift, please visit our website, newlifecs.net, and click on Give. There you'll find information to give online, by text message, or by mail. Thank you, and enjoy the following message. Job chapter 40 through 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is God's word. You may be seated. Job, one of the greatest men of all of the East, had been lying unrelieved misery for months with open sores all over his body. At first, Job bore these calamities, the death of seven sons, three daughters, and the loss of all of his wealth with amazing submission. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as the misery drug on for months, Job wavered in his confidence that God cared for him. In a debate with three of his friends, his three friends took the position that the severity of Job's suffering must be the sign of some grievous sin in his life. But Job silenced his three friends by showing that there is no correlation in this world between righteousness and prosperity or between wickedness and sinfulness and suffering. Yet, in defending himself against the bad theology of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he said things about God that were simply not true. He states that suffering is completely arbitrary. He began to insist on his own righteousness at the expense of God's justice. And finally, he demands a meeting with God to show God how he is wrong. In chapters 32 through 37, the younger friend Elihu rebukes Job and his three friends. The three friends of Job had not been able to accurately account for the suffering of this good man. And Job had said rash things and presumptuous things about God in order to justify himself. God originally designed Job's suffering to commence in order to show Satan and the armies of heaven that Job cherished the worth of God more than his possessions, more than his family, 
and more than his health. And after Job showed that the superior worth of God becomes evident to all when God alone is our treasure, there was yet another purpose that God sought to achieve by letting Job's suffering drag on for months. That purpose, according to Elihu, was to purge out of Job's life a residue of sin that had lain quietly at the bottom of his life. And when Job was shaken by this suffering long enough, the sediment of pride was stirred up and showed itself by his justification of his righteousness at the expense of God. Job's suffering was not punishment. It was not a sign of God's anger. Job's pain was not the pain of the executioner's whip, but the pain of the surgeon's scalpel. The removal of the disease of pride is the most loving thing God could do, no matter what the cost. Or as stated last week, suffering is instructive and curative. It teaches us of our sinfulness and of God's grace and greatness. Fifty years ago this weekend was the anniversary of the accident of Joni Erickson Tata. Fifty years ago, she became, in a diving accident, a quadriplegic. And though she professed faith in Christ, she struggled with why God would do this to her. And in an interview this weekend that's now out on the blogosphere, she complimented and credited Steve Estes, who counseled her and discipled her through this. And Steve Estes gave these words. God permits that what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. In the midst of terrible calamities, events that God specifically allowed to take place, Job developed a demanding spirit. He eventually became so persuaded of the rightness of his demands that he passionately desired an opportunity to state his case to God. Job apparently expected God would listen to what he had to say, pull slowly on his beard, and reply, Job, thanks for sharing your perspective on things. You've got a point. Frankly, I haven't seen things quite the way you see them. Look, I made quite a bit of an error, but I'll straighten it out right away. What does God do with a demanding spirit? What does God do when we insist on our righteousness at the expense of God's justice? In Job chapters 38 through 41, we get a rare opportunity to see how God directly responds to Job's demands and to learn how he would likely respond to us if we made similar demands of God. So to the end, toward the end of Elihu's speech, a thunderstorm had gathered in chapter 36, 24, and filled Elihu with awe. 
It is though Elihu senses the approach of God in this storm. And sure enough, somehow, out of the whirlwind, comes the voice of God to Job, beginning in chapter 38. So as we close out the book of Job, we are going to learn what is the proper response of the righteous to suffering. The proper response of the righteous to suffering is that we are to affirm God's absolute sovereignty and bow in humble submission. We are to affirm God's absolute sovereignty and bow in humble submission. In order to understand this answer to the question, which is actually found in Job's response to the second examination, it's important that we get the context of these chapters and understand the structure of these closing chapters. So let me explain. In Job 38.1, we will see the first examination. That will be then given by a response by Job. Then there will be a second examination in Job's response before we close out in the epilogue. Now, last week, there was a valid criticism. I did not put a lot of verses behind me, and I flew all over the place. I'm going to do the same thing today, and I'm not going to throw those verses up. But this time, it's going to be linear, all right? I will start in 38, so open your Bibles to 38. I'll walk you through 38, 39, 40. So you won't get lost. I won't bounce around, but open your Bibles, open up your cell phone, and you'll be ready to go. So let's look at the first examination. God thunders out this challenge, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will instruct, I will ask you, and you instruct me. Job's demanding spirit of chapter 31 is met with the steely glare of a surgeon ready to cut out the disease with a glistening scalpel. God began to put things in perspective for Job by requiring him, Job, to establish his credentials for debating with the creator. That is, he's got to pass an exam to prove his competence. Look at 38. And the questions about the world below. God will focus Job's attention on the earth. Look at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? God focuses Job's attention on the sea. Look at verse 8. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth? It went out from the womb. Verse 11, still talking about the sea. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. God now focuses Job's attention on the dawn. Verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? God then begins to direct Job's attention to the world above. He'll focus Job's attention on snow, hail, and rain. Look at verse 22. 
Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Look at verse 28. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? He now focuses Job's attention on the universe. Look at verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? God then focuses Job's attention on the marvels of the animal world. Look in verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and I wander about without food? And this continues on in 39 when God asks questions about mountain goats in verses 1 through 4, wild donkeys in verses 5 through 8, wild oxen in verses 9 through 12, and he goes on and on throughout chapter 39. And we get all the way to chapter 40, verse 2. The exam draws to a conclusion. And God issues this challenge. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. What has happened? Whether we consider how the earth and the sea were created, or how the dawn operates, or the origin of light and dark, or the order of the constellations, or the freedom of the wild ass, the stupidity of the ostrich, the flight of the eagle, the upshot is the same. Job is ignorant and impotent. He did not create them. He does not know how to control them. Why would Job presume to have the right to criticize anything about God's rule of the earth. Notice in verse 3, Job's response to this first examination. The questions had been asked. The point had been made. The demanding person who had earlier expected to fill his mouth with arguments, to wear a crown, to approach God like a prince. This man has been humbled. Verse 4, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice and I will add no more. What type of confession does Job make? It's a confession not of sin, but of insignificance. Job's view of God advances to a little bit of a higher, more adequate level. Job's answer indicates movement towards humility. Movement, but not enough. Progress, but not a cure. In Job 40, Verse 6, God renews his challenge. Look at verse 7. Now gird up your loins like a man 
and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. I'm reminded of the story of the man that was married to a very strong woman. This man ran the household. Excuse me, this woman ran the household and kept the man on a very short leash. She did not like the man hanging out with his old fraternity buddies. He, they, she felt that they were a bad influence on him. The man's friends were forever pushing him to stand up to his wife and do what he wanted. The man surprised his friends one time by showing up at the, unexpectedly at the Super Bowl party. The man explained that he had finally gotten his wife to got on her knees and crawl to him. A session of high-fiving commenced, celebrating. Then one of the friends asked for the details. Well, she got on her knees, she crawled over to the bed, lifted up the dust cover and said, get out from underneath there and fight like a man. <laughs> In Job 47, George 40 verse 7, God renews his challenge. Now gird up your loins like a man and I will instruct you and you, excuse, I will ask you and you instruct me. In other words, I'm not done with you yet. You're not dismissed. You failed my first exam. You couldn't even answer one question. Now, let's see how you do on the second test. While the first test dealt a little bit more with the comparison between God's power and Job's weakness, the second will begin to focus on the difference between morality and power. Look at verse 8 of chapter 40. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? The issue raised is this. Who is in a position to legislate what is right and wrong? If Job cannot explain the phenomenon of God's natural government, how can he possibly hope to understand the principle of God's moral government? In verse 11, God begins to speak about power. First, power over the proud. Look at 40.11. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Look at verse 15. Dinosaurs were probably wandering the earth at this time. That's our best guess who but what a behemoth is. Look at what a behemoth sounds like. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. For children, that's a cedar tree. Tail as big as a cedar tree. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. Verse 24. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? Make him a slave? Don't think so. Then let's look at power over Leviathan, a seaborn dinosaur. Verse 1 of chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will he, you take him for a servant forever? And the second exam will continue, but will eventually end. 
In chapter 42, we will see Job's response to the second test. We'll also see the answer to the question raised at the beginning of the sermon, how do the righteous respond to prolonged suffering? Job got the message. The surgeon had done his work well. Listen to the man who earlier had complained, desired to argue with God, bitterly expressed his innocence, believed he had a case, stated he had been wronged, wanted to meet God face to face, and wanted to approach God as if he were a prince. 42, chapter, chapter 42, verse 1. First, Job submits to God's absolute sovereignty. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou can't do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Second, Job submits to God's infinitely greater wisdom and knowledge. Notice in verse 3, he is going to quote God. He's going to say, you said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Here's Job's response. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And third, Job repents. He again is going to quote God and give his own response. He says, you said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. And now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What does Job repent of? Job repents of his demandingness, his bitterness, and his pride. But notice that while repenting, Job affirmed the absolute sovereignty of God and bowed in humble submission. That is the answer to our question. So before we conclude, let us close out this book. Note the epilogue that begins in chapter 42, verse 7. First, God is going to display his wrath toward Job's friends. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God tells them they are theologically wrong. God also tells them that they must ask for forgiveness. John Piper notes that these three cannot simply go to their closets and say a simple prayer for forgiveness and be done with it. They must go to Job with their sacrifices and ask Job to pray for them. 
This must have been deeply humiliating. The very one that they had accused of being far from God must become their priest to bring them near to God. In other words, God is seeing to it that the only way the three friends can experience reconciliation with God is that through experiencing reconciliation to Job. They must humble themselves before Job, not simply before God. That's the first loose end. Second, God proves Job's repentance. Look at verse 9 of chapter 42. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namanite went and did as the Lord told them. When the three friends come to Job seeking intercession with God, it's not just that their humility is on trial. Something else is on trial. And again, borrowing a thought from John Piper, Job is now being asked to love his enemies and pray for those who abused him. He is being asked to bless those who cursed him and not to return evil for evil. Isn't this the same as Matthew writes in chapter 6, verse 14? If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. My wife reminded me last week at the end of the second sermon, and we are still here in chapter 42 Job is still a very sick man. He has not yet been given relief from his illness. And God is asking him to go through one last test. Will Job lay down the weapons of revenge and accept the terms of God's treaty and extend amnesty to his friends the way God has? Thank God the answer is yes. Job passes this test. He didn't do so well in the first two, but he passes this one. His own attitude had bent him down in dust and ashes. How could he exalt himself above another man? How can he not give the forgiveness that he has freely been given? So verse 9 ends, And the Lord accepted Job, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his threats. Starting in verse 11, we look up to the third loose end. God restores Job's fortune. Beginning in verse 11. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him. And they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he named the first Jemina and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapa. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance amongst their brothers and after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations, 
And Job died an old man and full of days. So the book of closes with Job's repentance. The bad theology of his three friends corrected. Their foolishness humbled. The brotherhood of God's servants restored and purified. And the honor of God's name vindicated over against all of the accusations of Satan. So let us conclude with several final thoughts. There have been few men as godly as Job. Likewise, there have been few that have experienced the loss and pain experienced by Job. Job desired an explanation. Job demanded justification. Job got neither. In fact, Job, excuse me, God never answered any of Job's questions. Job never learned of what we knew took place in heaven between Satan and God. Job never got any justification for God's actions. Brothers and sisters, should we expect anything different? We need to learn how to affirm God's absolute sovereignty by not expecting an answer from him to all of our questions. Notice I said all of our questions. He will answer some, but he's not obligated to answer all. Second, the necessary foundation for any relationship with God is a recognition that God is God and we are not. We therefore have no business demanding anything of God, no matter how fervently our soul longs for relief from pain. It is wrong to internally demand that your loved one become a Christian or your spouse stop drinking, or that your biopsy be negative, or your rebellious child straighten up. Desire much, pray for much, but demand nothing. Humble people ask, proud people demand. To trust God means to demand nothing. Rather, we need to learn how to bow and humble submission. Third, accept that God is greater than we have conceived him to be. In chapters 38 and 39, there are almost 50 questions put to Job, questions that could be put to us, none of which he could answer and none of which we could answer. We need to appreciate that God is so great, so beyond our grasp, that we cannot possibly fathom the divine mind. To expect otherwise is to shrink God to our size. Don't, brothers and sisters. Let God be God. Fourth, man is smaller than we make him out to be. God did not only enlarge his own greatness in Job's eyes, he simultaneously shrinks Job's estimation of himself. If Job's God is too small, Job's estimation of himself is too great. He has allowed himself to think that he deserves an answer from God, that God is obligated to explain himself. Job set himself up as a judge over God. He entered a verdict, you are wrong, you are guilty, yet we are really small. Think of the stars in the heavens. 
there's thought to be something like 100,000 million stars. He created them. He manages them. And compared to that, we are really tiny. And unless we grasp it, our usefulness is limited. And finally, we need to understand that our sufferings are his sufferings. This is a very poignant story. I warn you in advance. Writing of her time in the Republic of Congo, which today is Zaire, where she had been abducted and raped, Helen Rosevere writes this in her autobiography. On that dreadful night, October 29th, 1964, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone. I had felt at last that even God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things not have needed not to go that far. I had reached what seemed to me the ultimate death, depth of despairing nothingness. Yet even as my heart cried out against God for his failure, and my mental anguish taunted me to doubt his very existence, another reasoning made itself felt. It was as if God said, you asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? Events had moved so fast. Everything seemed to happen at once. Pain and cruelty and humiliation had continued in an ever-growing crescendo. Yet with it, a strange peace, a deep consciousness that God was in charge and knew what he was doing grew. Odd thoughts and phrases, impulses broke through, and all of a sudden, the message was this. These are not your sufferings, Helen. They are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. Let us pray. Lord, we read in Isaiah 55, 8, where you state, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my way, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We entrust this message this morning to the work of the Holy Spirit. May the Spirit teach, instruct, and convince. May we truthfully embrace that the proper response of the righteous to suffering is to affirm God's absolute sovereignty and to bow in total submission. Lord, we also know that there may be some in this audience that don't know you. They aren't Christians. This morning, may they sense their sin and may they recognize 
that there is nothing they can do to pay for their sins. It is only through Christ's work on the cross and the unbelievers placing their faith in Christ's work and total payment for our sin and then repenting of their sin and trusting in that work of Christ that the unbeliever can come to faith in Christ. We thank you for your word. We pray that the Spirit will use this to glorify himself and to instruct us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.